what I'm going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 today, the first part, and looking at who God can use for his glory. The next week, we'll be looking at the second half of Matthew 1 and how can you trust God for his glory. And then lastly, on the final week that I'll be here is Matthew chapter 2 and how we can see God controls everything for his glory. And when we look at that, there's just a lot of wonderful things there that, that I'm anxious to, to share this with you. I haven't ever preached this before. This is something I developed new, but uh, it, I think it'll be, it'll be good. I give God praise, too, for the ministry God's led us to after many years in Jamaica. And when I was in Jamaica, I would teach in the Bible college during the school year and then use the summer months to go to other places around the world. And I'm seeing a lot of those places represented in your missions uh, board there. I've been in uh, Itzhak Ahmed's uh, home, stayed there while I was uh, teaching in Northeast India. In fact, I've been there four times and uh, been to India five times, but I've been to NIBBC four times to teach there. And I really have enjoyed that. In fact, my wife and I, once we got married, we still did that because she likes to travel too. So praise God for that. We've been to together um, several places and, and, and we haven't been on a missions trip in a while. So next year, well, we had the baby being born last summer and, and some things like that. And we moved to, to the United States in the summer before. So, so next year, we're going to be in Jamaica for, I'll teach a week and a half there. And then that'll be in the end of May. And then in June, I'll be in Peru. And I see that some of the people that you uh, support there in Peru, we know as well. That'll be our second time to Peru together. So uh, that's wonderful. But then being at Faith Baptist Bible College and theolog theological seminary has been a wonderful blessing too. I get to work with some amazing people. I love the faculty. I, I'm, the ex, uh, I'm the vice president for academics and dean of the college, so I oversee a lot of that. And I do get to teach classes, and I enjoy that as well. But the, the faculty is just a wonderful group of people to work with and work um, beside. I don't have to have all the answers, and that's just a wonderful relief to me. I just need to get the right people in the room and explain it all out, and, and we come up with solutions together. We give God praise for that. I wish you would pray for Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary. That I went to school there. In fact, actually, my parents did too. And, and actually, my wife is a graduate too of the seminary, and, uh, and it's just been a wonderful basis for which to, to do, embark upon life, and, uh, and especially in ministry as well. So we give God praise for that. And, and many challenges are there, but many blessings and, and uh, joys are there too, being able to influence others for, for, for ministry and for, for life. Well, I'd like for us to look at who can, God can use for his glory. And if you, looked, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, you might say, well... We're probably going to skip some of this, aren't we? Aren't we going to get right to the good stuff in verse 18, you know, because it's all just a bunch of names there. You can't just preach through a bunch of names, can you? Well, funny you should ask, because I remember when I was a kid sometime, I remember somebody actually preached through the genealogy in Matthew 1. I don't remember what they said. I don't remember who it was that preached, and I don't remember which people they they used to talk about, but I was intrigued by that. And so when Pastor Kyle called me and, and talked to me about this opportunity, I said, I'm going to try that. Now, I think it's, it, uh, there's, there's some wonderful things here. 
and I'd like you to introduce, I'd like to introduce you or to reintroduce you to some, some friends of mine, really, some people that I have looked up to as, that I don't know personally, but I have studied them a lot through the scriptures, that, and they have been a tremendous joy and an example to me. I, I used to teach introduction to the Old Testament or Old Testament survey class in Jamaica for many, many years, and so that was a wonderful opportunity to learn about some of these people. Who can God use for his glory? I'd like for us to look at the Christmas story really through these next three weeks as really from God's perspective and to renew our minds about how it was all planned in exact accordance with God's plans and his purposes. And we all know the details of the story. We're not going to learn anything new in that sense, but it'll be good to be reminded. But as a child, listening to it, it really kind of sounded like a lot of happenstance, you know? I mean, they happened to have to go to, Jeru to Bethlehem. Mary happened to be great with child. Didn't even know what that meant. And there happened to be no room for them in the inn. Why didn't they make reservations? I always wondered. Why... Did the, it just happened, these wise men showed up, although it didn't learn until later. They weren't actually in Bethlehem. They were later on in the story. But anyway, why did that king happen to get angry about the whole thing? And on and on it goes. But really, all of these mishaps, all of these challenges, all of these obstacles that are in the Christmas story are not there just by happenstance. They're really there because God purposed and planned it. And there's a reason and a... And a, and a uh, not just a reason, but, but there's, a, there's a purpose that none of them foresaw. And that purpose and plan didn't just start with Mary and Joseph on the way to, to Bethlehem, but it actually started earlier than that. And that's what these genealogies are there to, to, to tell us and to teach us. This, this whole purpose and plan started in, 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 in Christ's ancestry, his human ancestry, hundreds of years before he came. And actually, if, if Abraham was born in seven, or sorry, 2175 B.C. or 2168 B.C., wherever that is right there, it actually started thousands of years before he actually came. And so all of that, I think, is important, and very, very much so. Let's look to the Lord as, in prayer as we see that nothing here happens by accident. Father, we just ask for your blessing upon our time this morning. Thank you for the, the great music that uh, uh, points us to, to the, the prophecies made, especially with the branches and, and the branch of David. We just praise you for that because all of this was planned ahead of time. None of it was a surprise, and yet there was a greater purpose for, for it all. And we give you praise for that. We thank you for sending your son to come to this earth not only to be born, but also to die. And for this we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17 kind of helps us understand that even the genealogies are here for a purpose. And it says, so all the genealogies, generations, excuse me, from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And several things that point out to me, even as I read through this, Pastor Kyle showed me or told me about this uh, YouTube thing that you can look in, and all of these are in some sort of song, and I listened to that song. I didn't learn that song, and I'm certainly not going to sing that song. The only person I sing in front of is my daughter when she goes to bed. She has this 
nursery rhyme thing and I sing that to her. But other than that, I like to be anonymous in my singing very much so. But, but not one of the, I counted these names. There's 48 non, names here. Not all the names are people who are actually in the genealogy itself. Like Uriah is named for an instance. There's two names given for one person in the fact that Verse 16 mentions Jesus Christ, and that's actually one person, two names. One important person is mentioned but not named, and that's Bathsheba. But it shows God's purpose and plan from a long time before Christ's birth. There are stories behind each one of these names. Each was purposed and a part of God's plan to bring us the Messiah. Just think about that. Every one of these names and had a plan. Nothing God does is unplanned. And that's really what I want us to, to see. But for today, let's look specifically on the fact that, that God often uses people you least expect to accomplish great things for his glory. And with that theme in mind, that's kind of how I selected many of who we're going to look at today. This is going to be a little bit different of a sermon than what I'm normally used, used to doing, because usually I lock into a passage, I might refer to others, but that's my passage. Every, all the points come out of that passage, that's how we go through it. But this passage, we're going to not necessarily turn to other passages, but I'm going to re refer to different narratives in the Old Testament. The application is clear for us, though, I hope, that God uses people who you least expect to accomplish great things. Could you be one of those people? I want you to be thinking about that as we go through. There's so many stories to tell, so I'm just going to focus on a few. The people are on this list really is because of the son they had, and that son that they had, and it just continues down. However, I think God chose the people to bring us the Messiah in a specific way. There's some people in here that are horrible, and, and I'll mention a few, that that were just part of God's divine and, and purpose and plan uh, apart from, from anything they did. But there's some here that are really quite surprising and some that I, I think all have a lesson to teach us. First of all, I think we want to look in understanding that God has a, that God uses, often uses people you least expect. Why? Because those who have been forgiven much often produce the greatest fruit. I want you to think about that. Those who have been forgiven much oftentimes produce the greatest fruit. Now, I want you to look in, the, in the, the text here, chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Reuben. He's the firstborn. Or Jacob begot Joseph. Because he's the, most, he's the most prominent, really, and God used him tremendously, in the, in the, really, to, to keep the line going, you know, and provide protection and, and uh, uh, survival for the rest of his brothers. But that's not actually what it says. It actually says Judah. And that is a surprise when you think about it. Because Judah was a man who had to come to grips with his own sin, with his own past, and that wasn't a difficult Sorry, that wasn't an easy thing. That was, that was really difficult. There was, some, there was, in the narrative, a reminder of some things that, that most of us, if we had done that, don't want to, would not want to remember. You know, Joe, Judah was part of the brothers who, who sold 
Joseph into to slavery. They were jealous of him. And, and they didn't all share the same mother, but they all shared the same father. And Joseph was hated for his being favored. And you, you know, when they did that, do you remember who it was that had the idea of selling him into slavery to the Ishmaelites? That was Judah, actually. It was Judah's suggestion that they actually did. What profit is he saying, he says in Genesis 37, 26, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his bread, blood, let's sell him to the Israelites, to the Ishmaelites, excuse me. Let's make some profit on it. And they did. And it was his idea. He's in Egypt because of, sorry, Joseph is in Egypt because of Judah's suggestion. And how much did they sell him for, by the way? They sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Now, we can, I think, assume that Benjamin is not part of this group because Benjamin and Joseph are the ones that share the same mother, and he's probably in the tents there anyway. But that leaves 20 pieces of silver for 10 brothers. So they get two each. And you just talk about something burning a hole in your conscience and in your mind, and it's actually burning a hole in your pocket because you've got the, the evidence you're carrying around with you of the fact that you sold your brother, and it's all because of Judah's idea. And he had to come to grips with that. And God used something else in his life to help him to do that. And it makes you wonder, what do you suppose they spent it on? You know, eventually, if they would have kept it, they would have spent it on food eventually to... to provide for their family when the, when the famine came. And of course, that didn't last very long because they had to go to Egypt. But something else happened before then in Genesis 38. And you may, when you're reading through Genesis, I've read through the book of Joseph, uh, Genesis a lot in, in studying Joseph, and chapter 38 just doesn't really fit unless you understand it as, okay, Joseph is in, has been sold in, to slavery in Egypt, and what's going on with the brothers back home? And that's all about Judah. Judah commits immorality because he, had a, he gave his, uh, he took a daughter for, took a, a woman for his son, he died, and gave her to his other son, he died, and he was supposed to give, him, give her to the third son, and he never did, and, and uh, he eventually committed immorality with her, and, and she became pregnant, and it was brought forth amongst everyone to see. And Judah could have hid that sin, too. He could have said, yep, go ahead and burn her. She's brought disgrace on our family. Burn her. Don't want anything to do with this. But when she put forth the evidence that she had, he could have still said, burn her. I don't want to have any part. I don't know where she got that. He had all the power. Do you realize that? And yet, he said, she has been more righteous than me. I'm the one at fault here. I think that was a huge turning point in chapter 38 for, for Judah. He didn't want the child killed. Actually, it was twins. But, but there came an opportunity then to hide another sin. And Judah just said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this. I'm living a lie already. There's something in my past that I've done that is, that is terrible, and I just don't want to do this again. And so he admitted, brought family shame upon, upon him, very much so, on him personally. But he says, look, that's not, that's not important to me. Forgiveness is more important, or, or being honest. You know, that, that manifested itself. I think that, that uh, event helped Judah see 
that he needed to just do what's right no matter what. Because in Genesis chapter 43, this is in the, the context of, of them. They'd gone down to Egypt. They told this crazy governor of Egypt that they'd have... That had extra sons, and one of them wasn't with them. Benjamin was still back home. They are told to go back. They go back to, to Jacob. They have the food. Jacob says, go back down there. And he, they said, we can't go back down there unless we bring J Benjamin with us. Jacob says, no way. My son is gone. My, Joseph is gone. I'm not going to let, let Benjamin go. And, and Judah steps forth. Judah does. And he says, no I'll be a pledge for him. I'll be surety for him. I will make sure that no matter what happens, he comes back. You can trust me. I will do it. Now, interestingly enough, Reuben offered the same thing, but he was dismissed. <laughs> Reuben wasn't all that important at all. And I think his life, and you know what happened in there, uh, proves that. Jacob knew about that. So, so Judah becomes the surety. Did he ever act on that? Yeah, he did, because when the, gold, the silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack, this crazy ruler of Egypt, governor, which was actually Joseph, says, all of you can go home. It's not a problem. Benjamin says he'll be, my, he'll be in prison for the rest of his life. He'll be my slave. And in chapter 44, verse 33, Judah says, let me stay here. I'll stay in his place. Please allow the boy to return. Judah knew that there was more freedom in being imprisoned in Egypt for the rest of his life than there would be living a slave to regret in his freedom in Canaan. He wasn't going to have any more of it. He was tired of living a lie. He was ready to face whatever consequences so that he could live his life without guilt. Judah learned a lesson there. You know, that's important. Because now, I mean, we all know that, you know, Lion of Judah, tribe of Judah, that's David, that's Christ, that's, that's the, the main tribe. In fact, the, the 10 northern tribes get carried away into captivity. The southern tribe, primarily consisting of Judah, is the one that continues longer. Judah is the favored one, the, 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 the son of promise. And really, that's totally different than what you would expect. And yet here in this passage... We have someone who had been forgiven much, producing the greatest fruit. And you wouldn't expect that. But you know what? Who can God use for his glory? God can use those who are forgiven and understand. The application here. Have you written off a fellow believer? Oh, so-and-so, you know, they're not going to do anything for God. Why? Because there's some sin scandal in their life, in their past. You know what? It's not for us to determine who God will use and who God will not use. Do you understand that? But also, you might be very surprised when God is passing, when the rewards are passed out in heaven for us to cast it at Christ's feet. Somebody you might have written off as, oh, God can never use them. They're not important. Actually have more to cast than others. Beware of such attitudes and limitations in your thinking. Why? Because underlying that assumption is the fact that you're better than them. And you know what? God doesn't see us that way. He doesn't. Why? Because when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, he did it for all our sins, and any of our sins was enough to, to incur the wrath of God. 
And that is the, the, the wonderful message of, of, of Christmas, that Christ came, but he came not just to live, but he came to die to provide forgiveness of our sins. And that affects all of us equally. God doesn't disidentify certain sins here and there. The truth is we're not better than the other person. Another application is for those of you who think you've got nothing to offer God. Maybe you've had some major defeats in your life that make you think that God would never use you. So you never try. Again, that's wrong thinking. With repentance, proven spiritual maturity, God can use you. God can use you. Who can God use for his glory? He can use those who've been forgiven. Let's keep looking in our text, and it says in verses 3 and 4, it says, And Judas begot Pharis, uh, Judah begot Pharis and Zerah of Tamar, and Pharis, and Pharis begot Esram, and Esram begot Aram. And Aram begot Abinadad, and Abinadad begot Nason, and Nason begot who? Salmon. Salmon. He's a guy that we don't know a whole lot about. But he's a guy I've spent a lot of time in discussing and studying about. Why should you believe that God can use people who you least expect? Because those who, there are those who see beyond the outward appearances and can glimpse a reflection of God's grace for his glory. And that would be Salmon. He's, he's asking himself a question. Who should I marry? Who should I marry? I've asked that myself quite a long time. In fact, I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, who, who should I marry? He decides Rahab. Rahab. What title is nearly always connected with that name to describe her in the passages in the Old Testament? There's a few instances of this name being referred to a Babylonian de deity and one time to the nation of Egypt. But when we're talking about the Rahab in this gen genealogy, you find it in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. And it's actually also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and James chapter 2 in the New Testament. And that epitaph always follows her. Oh, she's a nice person. Really nice, but you'd never want to take her home to meet your mom. Who was she? See, Rahab had recognized that the God of this people, the people of Israel, was worthy of following no matter what the cost. Think of what would have happened to her if Israel would have been defeated. Do you think the king of Jericho, who had, must have had a pretty good network of spies, because those, he knew about those spies when the first they came over, you know, that was a disaster. But God used her to protect the spies. Do you think this king of Jericho would have been very understanding for Rahab and her family had he been victorious? No. She had no idea, though, that faith in this God would be used to bring us the Messiah. So who will I marry? This woman demonstrated more faith than many of the Israelites did. In Jamaica... When I would teach through the Old Testament, I asked this question to the class every single year, just as a discussion question. And one a year, we had a really solid class. I mean, we praise God for every class we had, but you knew that this class was going to do a lot of great things to the Lord, and they are. They're pastoring in Jamaica right now. They're all males, 
and I think all but one were not married. Anyway, I asked them, who would you rather be? Would you rather be Salmon, who married Rahab, or would you rather be Jeremiah, who was told by God not to marry at all? Well, that provoked a lot of debate. In this particular class, the debate raged on throughout the rest of the class period. It spilled over into the lunch period and went most of the afternoon with them. They were in their dorms and, and, and weighing this out. In fact, several of the other professors were drawn into the discussion as they were trying to, to uh, give them perspective. That was a memorial time. In our application, though, see, Christianity, as we know it, oftentimes only looks on the outward appearance. If you've done certain things, you're no of use of God, and your spiritual walk with God is inconsequential because God could never use you, so you don't matter. But that's not how God viewed, viewed Rahab. With a clear decision for God, proven spiritual maturity, God used her, and God can use you. I want to keep going because there's some good stuff here. Now, this next one, I, took, I had it in, and then I took it out, and then I put it back in. And uh, it's the very next verse. Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed and, uh, of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. And, of course, Jesse begets David. Now, I want us to focus on Boaz. Who can, you, who can God use in ministry? God often uses the people you least expect. Why? Because even a love story can evidence or manifest God's glory. Happiness after tragedy. Now, my wife's in the back. Full disclosure here, I don't read romantic fiction. I just don't. <laughs> Never. No, not me. And in fact, even Christian, I'm sorry, for those of you who are, you know, there's series out there and stuff, but even Christian romance novels, and especially romance novels that are historically based, I just, Christian romance, not, I just can't abide that. That's just not doing anything for me. So, I mean, I'm a history guy, but that shouldn't happen. Anyway, I mean, that's just my own opinion. However, uh, I do dutifully watch, I've watched Jane Austen movies with my wife. Yes, I do. I do. She likes that, so that's fine. I've taken my wife to see the Jane Austen home in Chowton in Hampshire in England when we were visiting. And when we were in England. Uh, and I've even been to Jane Austen's burial site, sort of on accident. I was in Winchester Cathedral in England one time, actually by myself. And, and I'm coming along the side of the cathedral, and you have all these memorials and stuff. And I'm seeing one, oh, Jane Austen, wow, she's right here, you know. I mean, I wonder where she's buried, you know, because, and then I realized, oh, she's, I was standing on because they bury him right in the floor, you know. So I've actually done that. So, so uh, I've done my bit on that, okay. I support my wife, you know, that's what she wants to do, good. All right. I think we find in Ruth this love story for a purpose and a plan. And I suppose Boaz knew what it's like for others to view him a, a bit strange, a little bit, that's uh, Boaz. Why? Because they know who his mother was. Don't you think that people were interested in genealogies back then too? Oh, yes, they were, especially in the Old Testament. There's lots of genealogies. There's chapter 5 of Genesis, chapter 10 or 11 of Genesis. There's a bunch of them in Nehemiah. Why are they there, let alone in, in Luke and, and in Matthew? Well, because people 
want to know where their relatives are. And can you imagine if you're related? I mean, if you're one of the 10 tribes of Israel, you're going to be related in those genealogies some way. And you get to see all those and how that works out. You suppose they knew about Boaz's mom? I bet they did. Absolutely they did. But no doubt his perspective was broader, a wider view, broader perspective, when he heard about this woman from Moab who had done some amazing things for her Jewish mother-in-law. Boaz had risen to great heights in his society of wealth, prosperous, his possessions were vast. Why would he look twice at a Moabitess? Why would he do that? Obviously, his options were probably pretty open already, unlimited. Why is this so unusual that Rahab, sorry, excuse me, Ruth would be helping Naomi like this? Why was that so unusual? Well, who's supposed to be helping her? Her family. Her family should have been, but they did not. And yet Boaz saw what others had not. See, to Boaz, what he recognized, didn't matter about her nationality, he recognized that Ruth was a fair jewel, far surpassing anyone he'd ever met. She was of greater worth to him than his own wealth, and he gave her the greatest thing he had. He gave her his name. And no doubt, I don't have any doubt at all, that he benefited, that he believed he benefited most in this arrangement. Can a love story manifest God's glory? Absolutely. Can you marry someone for God's glory? For a greater purpose than you realize? To, to set forth to the world what a biblical marriage should look like? I think you can, especially when you purpose to pursue a relationship that meets God's ideals of giving, purposing the other person's highest good rather than the world's ideal of selfish, self-centered, and self-indulgent love. Can your marriage reflect God's glory for a greater good or a greater purpose than you realize, even for the heritage of your children going on? Yes, it can. And it can do so for, for any two people committed to God's ideal of marriage. And I think this, was, this would have caught the, sight, the, the uh, notice of Israelites reading this. Boy, this is unusual. This is strange. And I'll tell you, when you got a good wife, it's wonderful. I once asked my wife, I said, you know, we, she's from Brazil, never left Brazil in her whole life except to come to the U.S. and marry me. We lived in the U.S. for almost a year as we're traveling around visiting my supporting churches. And because uh, I'd been in Jamaica for quite some time as a single guy. And uh, then we're in Jamaica, which is a different culture than than either one of us had grown up in. I'd been there. I'd known things, you know, how things are done quite a bit. So she's in a third culture now. And I said, honey, where do you think, what do you think of as home? You know, what's, what's home to you? You know? You know what she said to me? She said, wherever you are, that's home. And I thought, wow, this is a tremendous wife God gave me. Praise the Lord for that. I give God praise for that. But I also want to say, should not ever, ever, ever allow our marital status to prohibit us from, from being used by God. I was a single guy for almost 20 years after I graduated from high school. I was almost 39 when I got married. And God allowed good years of ministry. It was all to, to his glory, not mine. And in fact, actually, actually, I met my wife while I was serving God. You know, So I, I thought, you know, 
if I and I had this issue, you know, you get go to the mission field when you're not married, boy, that's it. You know, you're just giving it up on that. And of course, my parents, when I introduced her and told her about my wife and stuff, I, they were just glad I was getting married. Didn't care who it was, you know. Oh, that's great, you know, fine, wonderful. And uh, but but. Some people would say, oh, well, I can't do that because I'm not married. Boy, don't ever think that. God has great things that are possible and actual and wonderful for you to do in what status you're in, 1 Corinthians 7. Sometimes I think of, of oh, you can't do that if you're, uh, if you're not married. I think, wow, did someone rip 1 Corinthians 7 out of your Bible? Because that's kind of like the whole point of the passage, what Paul is saying there. Whatever your state is. Serve the Lord. So look, don't let that stop you. But you know, I think this, this love story that he puts in here is for us to see. Why did he choose Ruth to be a part of the genealogy of Christ? It reflects his glory by showing his grace. Wonderful stuff. Let's keep going in our text as well. Because sometimes the greatest strength arises from the least expected places. Sometimes the greatest strength arises from the least expected places. I'm thinking of chapter 1 and verse 9. And at the end there, it says, um, Ahaz begat Hezekiah. And Hezekiah begot Manasseh. And Manasseh begot Ammon. And Ammon begot Josiah. But, but I want us to focus on, on uh, Hezekiah there. Why was that so surprising? Who can God use for his glory? People you least expect. Why? Because sometimes the greatest strength arises from the least expected places. You wouldn't have expected Hezekiah to do what he did. Why? Because there were certain weaknesses in him? No, because of his dad, because of his heritage, because of the legacy. Do you know how bad Ahaz was? And, and you, what, what Hezekiah did was he oversaw, or he presided over the, the longest recorded revival in Israel's history from 2 Chronicles chapter 28-9 through 32. And his father was an awful king, an awful ruler, an awful example, and probably an awful father as well. Everything that he inherited was bad. The economy was bad. The crops were bad. The, the military was just basically a sieve. They let anybody in. But they couldn't stop anyone. The defenses of Jerusalem were a crumbling mess. The morale of the people was bad because people had, uh, their family members had been, had been taken captive. Their allies were horrible. In fact, they were worth not even having as allies. And yet their enemy was, was vengeful. And, and on, the, on the move, Ahaz had shut the doors of the temple and caused pagan worship to be common throughout the land. Ahaz had lost to every regional power that surrounded Judah. Anybody he got into a military conflict with, he lost. Ahaz had not been able to protect his people from these several nations that had raided Judah and carried off family members captive. They were grieving about this, in fact. Ahaz set the plans, sent the plans of a pagan temple from Syria to Jerusalem for the, for the priests there to construct. Ahaz had taken treasures out of the temple to pay his allies for their protection. Even though they took the money, they didn't, they didn't give him any protection. He was a fool. What did Hezekiah do? He could say, 
well, I don't come from a heritage of the Lord. And yet, he cleansed and restored the temple. And that's the first and only thing he did right away. Now you think, you got, the enemy is coming. The Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are awful people. You don't want to be around the Assyrians. I mean, you don't want to be captured by the Assyrians. How do we know they're so bad? Well, because they left us pictograms and we can see what they did. You ever, I'm not going to describe it to you, but you ever hear of the uh, phrase being led by the nose? Well, the Assyrians invented that. And they did it on a massive scale, literally. But the point is, is they were horrible people and they were coming. And yet, what does Hezekiah want to do? What is the biggest problem we have here that we have to work on immediately? Yes, the defense of the city or the army or whatever. No, the temple has been shut up and the, it needs to be consecrated. And the priests need to remember and learn again how, what they need to do to worship God. I mean, in the midst of all this problem, he wants to hold a prayer service. What is going on here? And yet, that's exactly what, he want, what God wanted. He, Hezekiah, worked to build the people's faith in the Lord Jehovah. That is, he, the Lord Jehovah, alone would protect them. He alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to provide for their needs. In fact, in chapter 32 of 2 Chronicles, he's Hezekiah says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria or the horde that he has with him. And let me tell you, it was a horde, large amount of people. For there are more with us than with him. That makes no sense. Unless you understand what he was trying to do. He says, with, the arm of flesh, uh, with him is the arm of flesh, with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence in the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So, so what he's saying here is, we need to fight. What Hezekiah did was he turned a bunch of basically pagan people and in a few short years got them willing to say, we're not going to cave in. When the Assyrians did come, the people of Judah held firm. They did not surrender. They did not mutiny. They did not falter. They did not lose their faith in God. And God sent an angel to come and killed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrians in one night. God used Hezekiah and yet, he didn't come from the right background. He didn't have a godly heritage. Who are you? Where do you come from? Did you not grow up in a perfect church family? Could God use you? My mother's parents divorced in the 1940s, just after she was born. That didn't happen very often back then. That's a very bad social stigma. She never grew up with her father around. Maybe he came from visits. But she grew up in and around foster homes and institutional cares here in Iowa and eventually uh, spent her high school years in an institution in Omaha. But she got saved at the age of 16 and went to Bible college, met my dad, who didn't come from a perfect family either and raised us to reflect God's glory, however imperfectly, especially in my case. Do you not come from a cookie-cutter Christian family? Oh, I don't have what so-and-so, I don't have what their, their heritage, or the, I don't have a godly, I don't have the right home, I didn't come from that, I don't know what that's like. In fact, all this time this guy's talking about the Old Testament, I don't even know what he's talking about, I never went to Sunday school. Can God still use you for his glory? Sometimes the greatest strength arises from the least expected places. God can use you for his glory. And I think the, the genealogies are here, and the genealogies prove that. 
This whole thing about the, 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 the coming of the Christ in Bethlehem was not just an accident. It wasn't just haphazard, and it was prepared thousands of years ahead of time. And these people, all they're in here for is the fact of who they had as a child. But the point is, is that there's evidence here that God uses people for his glory to reflect his grace to others. And that can happen to you. None of these people are perfect. Hezekiah kind of got bad at the end of his life. Showed the Babylonians something that they, he shouldn't have, and 100 years later they came and knew exactly where to look for the treasure because he had showed their ancestors. That wasn't good. But I'm just saying here, no one's perfect here, but they were used of God. How can God use you? You have a wonderful opportunity in the Christmas season to present the gospel. Why? Because when someone says happy holidays or season's greetings or whatever, you can say, hey, I'm so glad it's Christmas because it shows us that Christ came and, and, and God sent his son to, to come to the earth to understand us and to die in our place for the, the sin penalty we deserve. You'll have opportunity to do that, I trust, in the coming days. Be ready for it. God can use you. In the high school youth group that I oversaw when I was in, in college and seminary, quiet girl there, never said a word, and yet she brought more unsaved kids to youth group than anybody else. And you know what? She's still in the, in the church membership, and uh, uh, her kids are a lot older than mine now, and I ask her for advice on parenting because I'm kind of lost on this. God can use anybody who is, who is willing to be used of him let God use you. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for even these gene genealogies and the mundaneness of this. It's there for a purpose. It's there for a plan. The whole part of the birth of Christ, all of it, was not haphazard, not just happened. But, Father, we know that you put it together in the way that you did. We know there's some bad people in this genealogy, wicked kings and all the rest. But, Father, we know that there are some people here that are an example to us. Thank you for the opportunity to look at it this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us, challenge us to be that kind of person that is willing to be used of you. When the opportunity comes and when we look to find the opportunity, and for this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.